Let me invite you to stand as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes 10, we'll read verses 1, 2, and 3. Grass, grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin in verse 1. Listen, listen to these words. <clears throat> Dead flies make the, make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through your word. Pray that you would raise up in this congregation men and women that are serious about what it means to be a Christian. Father, I pray that even today you would take away all of those superfluous things that don't matter, all of those pursuits that don't amount to anything, and, and create in us a desire a yearning for the holiness that comes with being a Christian. So we ask your help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when the Apostle Paul wrote to the wayward church in Corinth, go and read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you'll find that those letters are written as correctives. When he wrote to that church, he cleared the air. In lots of ways, but he cleared it in chapter 1 when he said, We preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Has there ever been a more crucial time for us as Christians needing the power of God and the wisdom of God? Both of those are found in Jesus Christ. That's why any evangelical church, let's just do away with that term, any gospel-centered church always goes to the perfect life, the atoning death, the resurrection, and the call for people to repent and put your faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. The power of God and the wisdom of God found in Jesus Christ. So whether you are a student in the throes of Adolescence, whether you are a middle-aged man or a woman carrying lots of pressure, whether you are an older person wishing you were young again. You need the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, the wisdom of God is not elusive. The wisdom of God waits to be engaged. She's not coy. She's not playing hide or seek. 
When you read the Bible, you find out that the wisdom of God is not just reserved for a certain number of people who have gotten some experience in life. The book of Proverbs tells us that the wisdom of God shouts in the streets. You know what she says? The wisdom of God says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom doesn't come with, degree, doesn't come with degrees and diplomas. Wisdom is not a product of where you've been or how long you've been alive. According to what the Bible teaches, wisdom is a product of who you know. Paul said, we preach Christ. That's the wisdom of God. And, and in this passage, I, I've given you that New Testament to frame this passage. In this passage, the preacher, Solomon, the preacher is exposing our need for Christ. It's as if he is aware of the flimsy, doctrineless Christianity that, that people love so much because it requires so little. And here's what Solomon does in these three little verses. In these three little verses in chapter 10, Solomon clears up the cloudy water of vague religion. And he invites us to come and take the God of the Bible seriously. It's 2021, we live in troubled times. Troubled times of shifting morality and, and godless worldviews. And at this point in history, right where we are right now, this point in history, God calls for his people. We, we his, his people, we've got to strengthen that which remains. We, we've got to hold on to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints so that we have something to anchor our lives in. So what I want to do today, <clears throat> I want to take this passage and show you how we need to get serious about what it actually means to be a Christian. Because we are running headlong into a, a cultural furnace. And the cultural heat is being turned up to such a degree, even as we speak, and, and we need to be able to, to withstand it for the glory of God and we need to be able to withstand it so that the gospel of Jesus flourishes even as we go into a dark time for Christians. Because the world, this is what I believe, the world needs serious-minded Christians. Now, if that's the case, then I think this passage does something for us. I think these three verses uh, have, have opened up a couple of problems. And in fact, I think there are three problems. I want to use this passage, these verses, just to point out three problems 
I see in modern day Christianity and I'd like for us at Hickory Grove to go the other way. <clears throat> Number one, here's the first problem. Number one, we don't take sin seriously enough. In the modern pulpit today, you just don't hear sin talked about the fires of hell, the condemnation of God. It just becomes more of a therapy session than a gospel session. And I just want to pause and say the Bible points to man's overwhelming problem is sin. Let me share what I mean. Let's take verse 1 now. Here, look, look at the way verse 1 is, is written. <clears throat> You'll find in verse 1, watch what the preacher does. Verse 1, he splits. It's got two different sections in verse 1. And so here, he, he gives an illustration. It's a vivid, <laughs> how often you could say dead flies in church. It is a vivid illustration. So he makes a vivid illustration, and then he steps away from the illustration and makes a point. So let, let's read it. And then let's talk about it. Let me read verse 1. <clears throat> Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So, so there's the vivid illustration. Here's the point. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Let's take the first part. You see the picture? <clears throat> Notice the picture that the preacher is painting. It's of the apothecary the the if i lived in mississippi they would say you go to the druggist uh, we would call it here the the pharmacist it's the picture of this well-trained expert this uh this particular expert is a perfume maker and this perfume maker is 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 performing his aromatic alchemy. He's, he's taking ingredients and he's turning them into gold. It just smells good. So the picture is he's carefully bringing forth the finest ingredients. He's painstakingly and masterfully mixing those ingredients into this beautiful but fragile fragrance. This beautiful fra fragile fragrance is, is not like menthol. You know how strong menthol is? Remember back when I was a kid, uh, mentholatum, if you had, uh, had a stopped up nose, your mama would, would rub mentholatum on your chest, and it was supposed to clear. All it did was just knock you out. You don't know if you had a cold or not. You sort of were unconscious. It's not like mentholatum that, that is um, so strong or, um, or, or not like um, polo cologne. Remember polo cologne? I found a bottle of it in, the, in one of the bathroom drawers. I guess the boys left it there at the house. I pulled it out the other day. And decided I would wear some. Spread it on my hands and on my face. And, um, and everybody that came into my office said, do you have an air freshener in here? It smelled like one of those Christmas tree air fresheners. I, I got to where I kind of liked it. I like walking around being as an air freshener. Uh, Connie said she liked it, so now and then I'll spread a little, little bit of that polo cologne on. Not, not, not strong like polo cologne. No, no the perfumer... Uh, it's, not like, it's not like polo, it's not like menthol, it's not like essential oils that are diffused, that evidently cure everything. It's not like that. Nothing like what we know. The, here's what the perfumer is doing. He, he has this exact and careful and patient approach. He's mixing all of his ingredients together. He is obsessively protecting this 
this wonderful, fragile concoction from any impurities. And as he's carefully watching over his labor of love, he looks down into the bowl and he, he notices a couple of black spots. Some sort of rottenness, some sort of putref putrefaction. So he bends down over his bowl to get a closer look as to what that, what is that in, what is that? And as it gets down close, it, he, he catches this foul odor coming up out of that bowl, which is the exact opposite of what he's making. So he rubs his eyes and he looks back into the bowl, he gets his focus, and he sees a few, just a couple rotting flies in his masterpiece. And those two or three rotting flies have ruined the whole project. The illustration. Now the preacher takes a step back and says, okay, you get the picture right. Here's the point. You see the lesson? So a little folly Read, read sin. A little sin outweighs an entire lifetime of building wisdom and honor. There are a couple of things to learn here. <clears throat> there, is a principle that, there is a principle here that reminds us that in some ways evil has an advantage. In some ways. Evil has an advantage. Here's what I mean. It takes far less to ruin something than it does to create something. Far less to ruin something than it does to create something. It's, it's much easier to take life than to build life. It's much easier to make something foul than it is to make something beautiful. Let me bring it down to maybe... It's much easier to ruin a reputation than it is to build one. See what the preacher's doing here? The, the, the preacher is making a point. This passage is making a point. Now, now, think with me. <clears throat> this is not the obvious sinner. You can think of someone whose life is so terrible that you don't expect anything good out of them. This is not the obvious sinner that is living her life in straight rebellion and, and never in repentance. This is something more tragic. We've seen it. This is something much more tragic. You think about the people in the Bible. This is not Esau who's... We just know he's just sort of a beast of a man. He just does terrible things. He lives his whole life in rebellion. This is not, this is not Samson and some muscular buffoonery that just makes all these terrible decisions. We just expect the worst out of it. This is not even the judge Jephthah who, not just his rash vow, but his life seems to be on this bad path. That, that's not what this is describing here. This is the picture of a careful life lived with honor and wisdom and obedience 
and intentionality, and then that life being tarnished in an unguarded moment. This is the great man Moses leading God's people out, but striking the rock with his stick, doing it twice, and him not getting to see the promised land. This is Aaron, who's supposed to be the priest, fashioning a golden calf, leading the people astray. This is David, the writer of the Psalms. And we, we started our service today from David's writings, the writer of the Psalms, and he puts his pen down and steps out on the roof and lusts. This is Peter walking the road with Jesus, fighting in the garden, willing to die, and in the courtyard thrice denying. This is the fragrant aroma of an otherwise godly life being befouled by such a lapse, such a sudden lapse in judgment or a foolish impulse. This is the little, <clears throat> this is the little sin, this is the little heresy, this is the little, this is the little pornography, this this is the little anger problem. This is the little bitterness. This is the little unforgiveness. This is the little hidden. This is the little character flaw. This is what the, the Puritan Thomas Watson, this is what Thomas Watson meant when he said, what fools they are that drink a drop of pleasure and receive a sea of wrath. And what the preacher is saying here is what he'll say over and over again. What the preacher is saying is that it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. It's the hairline fracture that breaks the bone. It's the microbe that brings about the fever. It's a few grains of sand in the gearbox that brings the whole vehicle to a halt. I, I think there's a point here for us. <clears throat> I, think the, the, I think his point here is that we need to take those little sins seriously. We need to take those little sins that we all have, that we all excuse, if you only knew what I've been through. But we need to take them seriously. I, I think we should take real action. I think some of you watching, some of you sitting here, some of you that are dear friends, I, th I think you need to take some real action. What kind of action? I think you need to be cautious in how you live and cautious, cautious with our words and cautious how we live. I think we need to be in a continual state of repentance, going through, listing what, what are the sins that I can think of, what are the ones that I, I need to repent of, I need to confess that to God, not as judge but as Father. I think this brings us to a point of humility and a reminder that, that, that none of us here live a perfect life and none of us are, are so far above reproach that we can't be spoken to about our sin. I think this reminds us of our need for accountability. Do you have someone that can speak truth into your life and that is able to speak frankly and you receive that 
Or are they afraid that you're going to fly off the handle and it be completely irrational, even if it's done in love? We need real accountability. We need, we need discipline with our thought life. What happened to the days when Christians were disciplined with their thought life would not let the, the little foxes get in and ruin the vineyard? This is one of those areas that reminds us that we ought to be grateful for grace. We are people of grace. We don't, we don't try to live a perfect life so that God will let us into heaven. No, we, we, we seek to honor God with our lives because of what he's done for us at the cross of Jesus. This is a reminder that, that it took such grace to save every one of us. Let us never outrun the shadow of grace. This, this reminds us to be thankful and grateful for grace. This reminds us you, you need to pray for help and ask God to help you. Even, even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he got to the Lord's Prayer, the prayer is a petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is, this is a mindful, you think about the, just the little sins. Most of us think about world-class sins. Just, the little, just that is enough. Just one grain of, of sin is enough. This should make us mindful of the gospel. We love the gospel, the gospel of grace, that I can't be perfect. Jesus, though, lived perfectly. I, I deserve hell and damnation. I deserve the, the death that Jesus went to the cross and there at the cross, he took all the judgment of God. You're not going to be judged. Jesus was judged for your sins. The, the gospel, here's the gospel of grace. And you then are covered in the righteousness of Christ. You, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. Remind that it is the grace of God. When you come up with sin and you're reminded that you are a sinner, yes, then be reminded the gospel says Jesus saves sinners. Thank God for that. I think we need to be more serious. This, this world doesn't necessarily need smarter or more articulate or more entertaining or more chipper or happy Christians. This world needs serious-minded Christians. I think one of our problems is we don't take sin seriously enough. I'll give you another consideration. I think you'll find it in verse 2, number 2. <clears throat> we don't take discipleship seriously enough. Discipleship. you actually growing. At first glance, you read verse 2, at first glance it is, it is pretty straightforward. Now be careful when you read, some of you read verse 2 and your eyes lit up. I can imagine somebody that's politically active taking verse 2 putting it on a bumper sticker. It says, a wise man, hard inclines to the right, and then a fool's heart to the left. That is wrong. You, you don't pull it out and do that now. Don't put that on Facebook. What is he talking about here? Let's read verse 2. What does he say? A wise man, hard inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. So, so he's doing something here. Let's talk about terms right and left and wisdom and folly. Let's define the terms and make some application. <clears throat> so let me just go ahead and apologize with apologies to all of you that are left-handed. If you're left-handed, when you're reading the Bible, to be on the right 
To be on the right hand is to be in the position of honor or blessing. Jesus has ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God. When Jesus preached, he talked about the sheep and the goats, and he says that the sheep will be on the right and the goats will be on the left. Now, there are instances in the Bible where you see a left-handed person really have some advantage. The book of Judges, Ehud was a left-handed judge, and it was an advantage to him as a really good warrior because he was left-handed. Uh, you find in Judges chapter 20, uh, the slingers of Gibeah, they, they could sling rocks. They were all left-handed. So if you're left-handed, you're looking for some validation, there you go. But generally speaking, in the Bible, generally speaking, the right hand was wisdom. Left hand, sin, and even the Latin word for sinister. The Latin word for sinister is left-handed. That's where we get sinister from. So in verse 2, here's what the preacher do, does. He, he sets down two paths. Two paths that your heart will be inclined to go down. Verse 2 is a balanced aphorism. It says, this goes to the right, this goes to the left. Uh, this is wisdom, this is folly. Contrasting the wise man's path with, with the foolish man's path. And all through the Bible, you should hear that. All through the Bible, we are presented with, with two roads, two, two paths you can go down. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13? Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. It's smooth. The wide path is easy. Lots of people are on it. There's always a temptation, if you're a Christian, you're, you're on the narrow path, there always, there's always a temptation to be on the wide path. Wide path is easy. It's the narrow path that, <clears throat> that takes discipline. It's the narrow path that's difficult. And I think the confusion in church oftentimes is this. Oftentimes we see so many people that claim to be Christian to they claim to be changed in heart, and yet they live on the wide path. That's where I think genuine discipleship comes into play. Because I don't think that most self-professed believers are actually actively growing as disciples. And that needs to change. Because I'll tell you, this shallow form of Christianity that most people hold on to right now, that is going to evaporate when we go into the furnace of what we're headed to. Now, now when I say discipleship, I have a very specific thing in mind when I'm talking about a learner. That's the word disciple, learner. I have a very specific kind of learning about Christ that actually translates into how we live as followers of Christ in this, this present age. Let me give you a couple of things I think it will include. <clears throat> I think discipleship will include a clear and robust doctrine. Having clear and robust... Bus doctrine, the 80s and 90s doctrine was sort of, of left out in the, the back. We don't have to just, need to just need to love Jesus and forget about doctrine. I think that is an absolutely poor way to think about Christianity. 
You can't know who Jesus actually is. You need to know the person you're loving. Doctrine teaches us that. We need to know what we believe and what we reject. What we believe, doctrine says, we affirm this and we deny this. We need clear and robust doctrine. Look, we need, we need genuine Bible saturation. I've often heard it said in, in, in churches, planning programs, that we don't, need one, we don't need one more Bible study. Look, I argue you need as many Bible studies as you can get. You need to know this. This is all we have. You need to know the stories. You, you need to know the principles. You need to understand the gospel, how it runs throughout the Old and the New Testament. You need to see the themes. You need to be able to pray the Psalms. You need to know the directives. You need to know the distinctives. You need to go to this Word to be able to go there and draw strength and, and, and hope. You need to have enough Bible inside of you that you're going to have moral courage when you are faced with some of the decisions that you and I are going to have to make in the days ahead. I think there's another part that we've not gotten to, and that is a deepening, a deepening prayer life. That is to, to take a subject and be able to pray from every angle about that subject or a person to be able to lengthen out uh, your time in prayer to, to actually find joy in spending time with your Father in heaven in prayer. To, to be able to take these anxieties. Isn't that what Paul said? Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And here's what's going to happen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's deepening. I think we have, have to have strong Christian community. When I say community, I don't mean the neighborhood you live in. I mean the people you're connected to. We need one another. That's why it's congregational. That's why that, uh, this, this, this remote church has been so hard for so many Christians is because we are programmed to be together. I think there should be... Discipleship happens in vibrant worship. Vibrant worship. We are slaves who have been set free by the blood of Christ, and that creates a joy. When we gather together and sing unto the Lord and pray unto the Lord and have this word, there is not just a soul-stirring part of it. There is an emotional, evocative, there's a response to what we hear. I think discipleship, it brings us to being able to have precise, moral judgment. Not in vagaries, precision. There, there are days coming when it takes the ability to have nuance in how we think. This world we're living in right now, this world needs serious-minded Christians. <clears throat> Sometimes I'm afraid that we don't take sin seriously enough. I'm certain we don't take discipleship. By the way, that we're, we're, take, we're going to start taking that more and more serious here at Hickory Grove. We don't take discipleship seriously enough. I'll give you a third problem. I'll see. I'll make it quick. Number three. We don't take being different seriously enough different verse 3 you see the preacher it's like he's looking out the window <clears throat> verse 3 there's a little bit of a uh, almost a comic feel to it. verse 3 is the preacher looking out the window and he sees the fool walking down the road and he makes this comment about the fool let me read it to you in verse 3 
Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. In other words, everybody can look at that guy and tell by observing. That boy's a fool. I mean, just look at him. Look at his life. Look at his everyday life. I, I went back and looked uh, in Ecclesiastes. I went back and looked at all the times that, that the word fool shows up. It shows up a whole bunch. And uh, what the preacher says about fool in the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 2, he says that the fool is, is morally blind and he's lazy. Chapter 4, he is absolutely lazy. Chapter 5, he talks too much and um, runs his mouth and God takes no pleasure in the fool. Chapter 7, that fool is rowdy and shallow and constantly irritated. Chapter 9, that fool won't listen to anybody. And the idea seems to be in verse 3. The idea seems to be that the foolish person is obvious. You know that how you live is a reflection. I don't know why so many Christian people work so hard to actually be accepted by a pagan world. I think that is the pressure that we feel. And that pressure tends to have us cave on the things we know are right and wrong and godly. And I wonder if your life actually genuinely reflects the Jesus you say that you know. I started this sermon with a quote from the Apostle Paul. Paul said to the, church, to the church at Corinth, we preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. I, I want you... I want you to have the power of God on your life. I want you to live your life with the wisdom of God. That power and wisdom is found in Jesus. What is the gospel we preach? That Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross in the place of sinners, paying for all the sins of every sinner that will ever be saved. God raised him from the dead, and now he calls on all men and women everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. As we close today, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Just be still where you are. <clears throat> Is there a small sin in your life that you've not been serious about? And this morning you've been made, just made painfully aware you need to repent of that and make it right. If you're a child of God, you are saved by grace. It's the grace of God waiting to wash over you. We need to be serious about sin. We need to be serious about discipleship. Some of you have been lazy with your own walk with the Lord. You are not equipped to face what we have to, what we have to face in this world. I'm calling you to a deeper, a 
deeper sense of learning and following Jesus. Some of you struggle with the pressures of the society you live in and it's so hard to be different and you've just been reminded that we are. And we need to be serious and, and joyfully take that difference as a blessing. The world needs serious-minded Christians. Father, make us, make us serious-minded believers that love Christ above all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.